it's the natural order of things, and they don't sort of see the, the offsetting increase in options implied volatility that normally occurs. Instead, what they like to focus on are, are the rallies. We've had a couple of very erratic days, and when people see, when, when stocks go down a thousand points, as the Dow did you know, in previous sessions, but then suddenly races higher, the human mind is inclined to say, ooh, the, the worst is over, isn't this great? But I look at it, the upside ball scares me as much as the downside ball. You're listening to Traders Insight Radio by Interactive Brokers. Find more podcasts and daily market commentary at tradersinsight.news. The following podcast contains options-related material. Prior to listening to today's podcast, all listeners should read and familiarize themselves with the characteristics and risks of standardized options, or ODD, which may be accessed through the link found in the show's notes or podcast description page. Please remember, any trading discussions are for information purposes only and are not intended to portray recommendations. Please listen to further disclosures at the end of today's episode. Now, welcome to our show. Let's get started. This is Steve Sosnick, Chief Strategist at Interactive Brokers, and welcome to Interactive Brokers Radio. We're taping this podcast today on January 26th, right ahead of the Fed meeting this afternoon. Um, my guest today is one of my best friends in the business, someone I've known for years and someone who I talk to on a regular basis, someone who I actually haven't called this week so that we'd have more to talk to on, on air, uh, my good friend Steve Sears. Steve is uh, the co-founder of Option Solutions, um, a money management firm. I was going to say based, I don't even know where you're based. You're based sort of in several okay. places. Okay. And you're in Atlanta, but the firm's in Chicago. Um, and Steve, many of you know him um, because he's been writing the striking price column uh, for Barron's for a number of years. How many years exactly now? Something like 15 years and 10 months. Something like that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was going to guess 12, but, but it's 15. Um, <laughs> yeah. And for those of you who, who are familiar with my work, um, you, you kind of have Steve to blame for. And he and I started talking regularly, and we'll, we'll get into that more as the podcast goes on. And along the way, um, he was foolish enough to let me uh, guest author his column periodically when he would go on vacation. Um, and that pretty much led me to being able to be the one person at our firm other than uh, Thomas Petterfee uh, who could speak to the rest of the world at large. And, um, you know, from That's there, right. it's all changed. So, Steve, why don't, you let, why don't you introduce yourself briefly more than I've done, if there's anything I've missed, to, uh, to our listeners. Well, it's great to be here with you. I was excited to do this podcast. As you said, I'm the president and COO of Option Solutions, which is a money management firm based in Chicago that helps high net worth investors use conservative option strategies in their portfolios. I founded the firm with Bill Brodsky, the former head of the CBOE, and with his son, Michael Brodsky. And it's really exciting to be able to take many of the things that I've written about and covered and actually put, put them to use. Aside from that, I, I've written, I've had the enormous good fortune over the years to sort of discover the options market before the options market was really discovered. And I remember when I was a, a young uh, Dow Jones reporter, I was fascinated with what made the markets move. And, and the senior editors called me to their office one day and they said, we want you to cover the options market. And I, and I said, and I quote, what the hell is that? And they said, we don't know, but we think it's important. And what that did is it led me on this incredible journey where I got to meet people like uh, Thomas Petterfee and so many of the, of the other truly great investors in our market. And then it led me to you. And you, you and I have been, have been tight and close now for a long time, you know, for a, lo for a long time. And we've seen all kinds of different market cycles. And I've been very fortunate to, uh, 
to be able to participate in it. Now, one of the things in your bio is you call yourself Vix's uncle. For those of you who have heard the term VIX but are not familiar exactly with what it is, the VIX, it's designed to be the market's best estimate of volatility over the next 30 days. Um, yeah. Why don't you elaborate on that one? Because that's that. I, I'm not disagreeing with that at all, but that, that requires <laughs> some explanation. So please well, go I'll, ahead. I'll tell you, when, when, I, when I first began to cover this market, and this really marked the first time that, that the journal had ever covered trading market prior to then, Everything was about a stock went up or down because of a research node or or maybe because of a corporate transaction. And it occurred to me while covering what at that time in the late 90s were five fragmented markets, uh, Philly, the old Picos in San Francisco, Chicago, the Amex in New York, all of whom maintained multi, uh, single list listings. And so there was no crossover that we needed something in the options market similar to what the Dow was for the stock market. And, you know, what do they say that... Uh, Invention is the motherhood of necessity or something like necessity that. Necessity is the mother of invention. Necessity is the mother of invention. So I seized upon the VIX and, and, and it just sort of took off. At first, the, uh, the CBOE was vehemently sort of opposed to me calling it the fear gauge. But soon, but, but ultimately, it, it led to the creation of the VIX derivatives and helped to people to understand the options market. Um, whereas in the past, it had been hard to sort of view it in its entirety. It was always fragmented, strike by strike, ticker by ticker. But now suddenly we have this one essence that, that, that enabled us to sort of talk about things in a, in a systematic way. Now, I call myself the uncle because I did, well, I didn't create the VIX. That was Bob Whaley, who I, I think was a Duke at the time. Um, but, but, I, but I claim some, some family connection because I helped to popularize it. I, I think your partner, Bill Brodsky, has to uh, take a little bit of a role in that as well. Was he, well, was he, was he in, uh, involved in the product? Oh, 100%. Yeah. In fact, in his office, um, he has the VIX formula frame be, be behind his desk. And so Bill, of course, is an incredible, an incredible executive, an incredible leader within this industry. And he introduced, I want to say maybe a decade ago, I, I, I could be wrong, options and futures on the VIX, basically help, helping to give birth to the global volatility market. And within my firm at Option Solution, not only do we have Bill, uh, Brodsky, but we have Bill Speth as as our as our head of research. Bill Speth was at the CBOE, and he was instrumental in in giving birth to VIX options and futures. It was very yeah. interesting when those got when those came about because when you think about it, it's really a second derivative, and it was not something that we you know one of the things we always avoided in the you know in the, in the earlier days of options trading was options on options, and effectively. Though not exactly the same way, you know, VIX is its own index, but it's really a derivative, and then trading derivatives on a derivative. It, it, at first, that was a big leap, uh, but obviously, the world embraced it. One thing, of course, where I think we differ is um, when you look at Bill Brodsky's formula, you don't see the word fear in there, do you? Well, I do. <laughs> I, 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 I do. It's you a, know. I'll tell you, when we first began to use it this way, it it it, it surely did manifest fear. And the, the, the world was, didn't realize it, but the world wanted a way to sort of quantify fear. Now, it was like an old inside joke where if the column in the journal ever began, uh, the CBB volatility index, you know, declined, the stock prices rallied, that nothing happened. And so it's kind of been like, a, like in happy days when, when Fonzie was jumping the shark. So now it's exported so often everywhere for everything. It's like financial silly buddy. That, that I think it's lost some of its uh, oomph that it had in the earlier days. And now I really do look at it basically as a, uh, one is a proxy for our options expensive or cheap. 
just at the very first level. And then two is two is one of sentiment. And, and I won't get into the fact as to how you can change VIX levels by the bid ask spreads or the SPX. Yeah, well, you know, we, we, we could do that, but I think we'll, we'll keep it relatively math free here. I've written about this. You've written about it. Um, and by the way, to the producers uh, who are listening in, financial silly putty may be, the, may be the phrase we want to gravitate toward. The other one, I was figured it was going to be socially acceptable volatility, which is another one of your favorites. Uh, it, it is. And please that explain are- that one, too. Well, what fascinates me is how people react to downside volatility and upside volatility. Now, most people don't like it when stock prices go down. They, they, they think yeah. that's bad. It's and, against and the, the natural order of things. It's yeah. the natural order of things. And they don't sort of see the, the offsetting increase in options implied volatility that normally occurs. Instead, what they like to focus on are, are the rallies. We've had a couple of very erratic days, really, this, this week. And when people see when, when stocks go down a thousand points, as the Dow did you know, in previous sessions, but then suddenly races higher, the human mind is inclined to say, Ooh, the, the, the worst is over. Isn't this great? But I look at it. it it's, the, the upside vol scares me as much as the downside vol. Markets don't behave like that and stocks don't behave like that. And so that's why I call it socially acceptable volatility. And there's somebody on Twitter who I'm connected with, not you. And he says, we need to make a ticker. So he came up with the ticker, save. <laughs> Which I think is so is, is so clever, but I, I think the volatility we've been seeing back and forth in, in the stock market is is quite disconcerting. Yeah, I mean, I I think we're gonna, you know, that's something I wanted to get to. I mean, in terms of, you know, in terms of your strategies, which to to my understanding, you know, you're you're actively writing against, you know, your customers' core stockholding positions. You know, how do you handle this now? Because your firm is relatively new. It, it came it came about. Uh, in, in a period where stocks were generally relentlessly rising, where volatility was generally quiescent. And here we find ourselves in the past few weeks in the opposite of that. And whether that persists or not is, is, a, is a bigger topic. But how have yeah. you found you've had to change your strategies? Well, there's an old New Yorker cartoon that, that I always love, and I think I've shared it with you. And there's a couple sitting at the end of a bar and there's this fellow in a, in a suit and he's speaking to the couple and he says, sometimes I sell calls and sometimes I sell puts. It's a full life. <laughs> and, I've seen that. You know, so like when, when stocks are rising and you're, 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 if you're short upside calls, you just have to be very artful and disciplined in, in strike selection and deltas. And the same thing is true for, uh, you know, on the downside. The incredible thing, though, is that and you know this, is that the options market or options trading is a discipline and a mindset. And what you tend to see is that people are very disciplined most of the time as to how they treat their equities. Mm-hmm. And so if something is taken away, uh, if it's exercised, there are ways, as you know, to reestablish the position. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes that's part of the goal is, to, is like you can be paid by the options market to sell stocks at higher prices and you can be paid by the options market to buy stocks at lower prices and there's a lot of you know much more sophisticated analysis that goes into determining where you are in that process but that that's basically the uh the gist of it and, the, and the, really the great thing is despite how important the options market is to the financial markets and even the and even the world and how, and how risk is, is handled. We still face an enormous learning curve. So you can have the most sophisticated investors, people who have C-suite experiences at major financial institutions or Fortune 100 banks, and they don't understand that, which which to us is just such a common way of thinking. And when they do see it, it tends to sort of turn on a light bulb in, in their brains, and it becomes a real aha moment. 
That, that's interesting because, you know, I, one of the things that we've been really trying to stress here and something that I've kind of, that I've wanted to do my entire career and I've endeavored to it now that I can talk a bit more publicly is education. Um, and, you know, I think as much as we try to educate, even, as you say, even some of the most disciplined investors still view the options portion of their portfolios. Well, that's the money, you know, that's like the money I take to the track. That's my, you know, that's my, that's my gambling money. And unfortunately or unfortunately, um, it worked so well as a gambling proxy, um, let's say since March, particularly since March 2020, when, when I think a lot of the public who was new to the markets realized, oh, wait, this is a, this is a way we can, you know, supercharge, supercharge our investments. Um, I think they're finding it a lot harder um, as, as things don't move in one direction. Um, well, there's a great which is where part. the discipline comes in. It is, but like you, you yourself are, are a perfect personification of this because you're analytical and extremely disciplined in what you do. And that's what I've always admired you know, about your approach. I've spoken to you during the best of days in this market and the worst of days. And you always sound, you know, but, but by the way, the, by the way, you did, it's a podcast. So I know you So just. Oh. <laughs> Just so he 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 moved his hand in a linear motion across the yeah, across the screen. Just, just, just very very calm. There's a chart going around now, which you may have seen, which takes I don't know if it's GameStop or AMC, and it juxtaposes that stock performance with Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, and the chart's titled "The Tortoise and the Hare," and these GameStop guys they're they're trying to to well, violate the, the Berkshire. It's actually Arc. Um, because you know, think about the two different. It's, it's ARKK. I've seen Arc on that one too. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah. I've seen the it's one with I've seen the one with Arc, and it makes sense, right? You know, Kathy Wood, and I'm not gonna. I don't know her personally. I, I don't want to denigrate her style, but it's not my style. But she, you know, she latched on um, as a futurist. Let's call it, uh, you know, to 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 this type of names that people became enamored with, whereas Buffett, slow and steady, it's basically value versus growth. You know, Buffett is, you know, or at least you could argue with Buffett, some combination of value and growth at a reasonable price, whereas Kathy Wood is, you know, I, I would argue her portfolio was more growth at any price, and they've started to converge. Um, you but know, I Buffett's think, all about the I earnings. And, I, I think they have a lot in common and, and a lot that, 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 that separates them. I think uh, Kathy... I don't know either of them. I tried to interview Mr. Buffett once, and I, I got uh, one of his assistants gave me some cryptic answer, but <laughs> that's a story for another day. But Warren Buffett's a thematic investor, and so is Kathy Wood. They just happen to have different themes. Excellent point. And you, you know, and I think you know Kathy, uh, Miss Wood's like Icarus. She flew very close to the sun. The success she's had with her firm is 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 very hard to even think of uh, of anyone who's been that successful that quickly. I'm sure she, it wasn't overnight to her, but if you look at her AUM, it, it looks like it like it was. And then Mr. Buffett is just and he's phenomenal. It, obviously, in every single you know way, you size up an investor, and a, a lot of what both of them do, really, but really, Mr. Buffett has sort of influenced what we do at, at our firm. Because the problem with the option stuff, as you know, is that it's very easy to misuse them or to use them in the most purian ways. But there are very, very sophisticated, smart ways to use them to articulate views on equities. And if you um, look at what Mr. Buffett does, and if you were to read all of his investment letters, and I, and I have, 
There's always one word that always appears in there. It's called compounding. And that word appears usually within the first paragraph. The eighth wonder of the world, compound interest. 100%. And if you look at, so like, where I may differ from some people who use options is for options sake, I would say that I've met very few people who are so good that they can be an options expert and only trade options. I, I, would, I would put you in that category and a handful of others. But for the rest of us, what you can do is use options to curate your stock experience. And if you recognize that there is a natural life cycle and ebb and flow to stock prices, mm -hmm. and that you can use options to smooth that out and to compound returns by reinvesting options premiums or other things like yep. that, it gets very interesting. And I don't think anybody's really doing that. And some people are, but it's not the key thing that you think of when people bring up options trading. That's no, that's very fair because Warren Buffett's had an interesting experience with derivatives himself. He, remember, he's famously known for calling them instrument of financial destruction or something, something of that nature. Weapons, weapons financial, sorry, yeah. weapons, weapons of financial mass destruction. Yep. And I saw, and so I called him one one day some years ago. We saw a bunch of options trading going on. At, you know, in, in a filing, and I called his office, and, and my impertinent question was, "But sir, you said these were weapons of financial mass destruction." And, and I never got to speak to him. And his assistant said, "Hold on, I'll, I'll go ask him." And the answer that, that, that came back was Hart Scott Redino reasons. <laughs> and I was like, so, he, so he was involved in a merger, and he was using it to control stock. And then you know as well as I do that he became one of the great sellers of S&P 500 index options that expire in 13 years and that the insurance companies have to buy yes. for variable annuity policies. And maybe five years ago, that market convulsed a little bit when they realized, that, oh, my God, I'm into a 13-year you know, trade <laughs> with this guy. He's 90 or however old yeah. he is. <laughs> but, but also remember, you know, that, that's, again, sort of sometimes the folksy image obscure stuff. Think about what he did. Um, he some of his greatest trades have involved warrants. Some of the some of the stuff in the Tarpier or the Goldman Sachs warrants that he that he was involved. Bank in. of America. Absolutely. All, all, all this sort of stuff. I, I think when when he says weapons of financial mass destruction, I don't think he's necessarily talking about that which we do, but perhaps you know credit default swaps and all kinds of other exotica. Which elsewhere. Which quite frankly, I mean, if we had another hour, I and mean, we could go into you know. The, the, the fact that credit default swaps kind of almost were an instrument, you know, they, they had a huge role in the 2008 crisis. Um, Big time. You know, a, a, the short version is a lot of European banks used credit default swaps with AIG instead of permanent capital because they were allowed to do so. And uh, unfortunately, it worked when they were AAA credit and not so well when AIG was, uh, you know, became Iraqi credit. So, but that's, that's the short version of the financial crisis. One thing I wanted to do was, you know, you and I sort of, over the last few years, our paths changed. Now your path has changed a few times. You went from journalist to exchange executive to journalist yeah. and, and, and whereas I sort of always stayed on the prop trading side and now I'm kind of quasi journalistic strategist while you've become full-time trader and investor. Um, go through some of the, the, the things you went back and forth with because that's how we first that's how we first met was back when you were working for the exchanges. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I was a young reporter, I, um, I, I noticed that each of the major exchanges only traded you know one specific blue chip option. So I think like uh, Intel was at the Amex, IBM was at SIBO, Dell was in Philly. And they never traded in any place else. And I remember asking somebody a question at one of the exchanges. Well, why is that when like stocks trade every place else? And the answer that came back was, 
you can't force people to compete if it's not economically viable to compete. So I thought, I don't think that's true, <laughs> actually. <laughs> and so we wrote a story about this. And the very next day, the Department of Justice launched an antitrust investigation, which, which led to a, a complete forced overhaul of the exchanges. Now these things are traded on any exchange. The, the spreads have come in. They initially came in like 75 to 80%, but now I'm sure it's even more than that. And I was wrapping up my, uh, I wanted to see that story to closure. Okay. And then I said, like, well, what do I, what do I want to do next? And at that point, the options market, I won't say that it was in its infancy because it had been around since 73, but it wasn't anywhere near what it is today. Yeah. And uh, Sandy Frusher, who was most recently the vice chair of the NASDAQ, at that time was the chairman of the Philadelphia Stock Exchange. The oldest stock exchange in America by two years. Which at, that, which at that point was like in this nondescript building on Broad Street and in the basement of the building, no less. But yes. Oh, yeah. So, so it, it, there was no glamour uh, <laughs> there whatsoever. But what there was, was an incredible opportunity to fix and advance that which I had identified as being broken um, as, as a reporter. And Sandy is an infinitely fascinating guy. And he hired me on as a senior advisor to the chairman. Next thing I knew, I had most of the exchange reporting into me and one other fellow. And we just read the strategy. We, we, we did the uh, balance sheets, cash flows, technology changed, everything. That got sold to the NASDAQ. About that, you know, and just before that, uh, I happened to be at an airport. I'm a, I happened to be at JFK on my way to a conference. And who did I bump into with David Krell? Explain, explain to everybody who David Krell is, please. So D David Krell was tasked by Bill Porter, the founder of E-Trade, with introducing electronic trading into the options market. And so David assembled a small group of, of, uh, of executives to do just that. And uh, up until that point, all options were largely traded on the floors, despite the story about you know, anti-competitive nature and you know, re restraint of trade and bad spreads. The fact of the matter is when your order was executed from your broker or whoever, it went down to a trading crowd. And they executed it, not as not nearly as uh, as sleek as, as it is today. So David was trying to set up a way where you had the dealers and the market makers existing in an electronic market, not dissimilar to, to the NASDAQ. And, and so I'd always been friendly with from the time he was in New York. And he says, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm trying to take apart your business. And um, so, da so David said to me, so come see me when you're back in New York. And, and, and I did. He made me an offer to come join. I think the office, I had this, this sort of like spooky title, Office of Special Services or something. And That sounds like I henchmen. That could be like henchmen. Literally. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it was something like that. So it, it wound up being uh, initially like strategic planning or reported to the CFO. The, the CFO of, of what became the ISE. Again, oh, again you, ISE. You, you and I are speaking in shorthand, but, Sorry. but I realize Sorry. that we need to clue so everybody else in. There, there are probably 40 or 50 people there. It was a very exciting time because something new was being absolutely created. And I got joined to come in and sort of provide, you know, strategic analysis, be involved in strategic planning, new product development. I was in charge of listings, payment for order flow. If you're a media guy in any company, in any corporation, you're going to get some of the media stuff. So I had that report to me. I was in charge of uh, lobbying Washington. I wrote, the, I wrote the business plan for index options, listing index options because ISE just been equities. And I'm sure I'm leaving a, a few things out, but it was a really exciting time. And when that company was bought by the NASDAQ, which also bought the Philly, I thought, geez, like, what am I going to do? Like, what's, what's next? And the exchanges were going into a different... I thought sort of the super exciting time was, was uh, sunsetting as these things became different types of businesses. Which I, which and, I don't think you're wrong. The, the consolidation, 
we, we've had a huge yeah. consolidation of exchange groups, not of exchange venues, which is a pet peeve of mine, but sorry. Right. No, you're, you're, you're completely right. So they got vacuumed off by some of the bigger exchanges and they could offer all kinds of different market structures and things like that. And I was thinking, like, what did I want to do? And I've always loved um, writing in markets. And, I, and they had told me when I left Bear, um, Dow Jones that I always, if I ever wanted to come back, just to let them know. And after I don't know how many years of leaving before my children woke up, and coming home after they were asleep, I thought this might be a nice way to get sort of reacquainted with everybody after so many years. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and, and it was, and, and I was just, I've just been so fortunate. And I wrote a book during when I got back to Barron's and, and, uh, which I recommend by the way. Thank you. Thank you. And then, you know, but now, yeah, give, give everybody the title and the publisher. I know it's a few years old, but please. Thank you. It's, uh, the book is called The Indomitable Investor. Why, if you succeed in the stock market when everybody else fails, because I'm fascinated, frankly, with what I learned in the options market and how that can be applied into a non-option centric way of navigating the financial world, just decision making and discipline. And the Barron's thing, I mean, I, I love Barron's. I think it's a national treasure. I think everybody should read it. I think it's one of these places where um, the information is as clean as it's going to get. The analysis is solid. There's no hidden agenda. It just is what it is. And but then I had to, you know, I've been in business and I've been in journalism. It's like some guys were revolved between corporations and government. <laughs> I've revolved between journalism and the street. And I've just been very lucky to be able to function in a lot of different ways that have, that have all really appealed to me. Um, I, and my pen is still active, which I'm very grateful for, because, as you know, nothing forces you to really think quite like having to fill a, an empty page. And then I'm very lucky to be able to take all the things that I've experienced and learned now also run an asset management firm, which, which is pretty exciting. That, that to me, you know, you've had this great trajectory, I guess. Yeah, the, go the government versus corporate is a great analogy. We're, we, yeah. We've got a bit long, but there's one part I have to get back to. Okay. And it's about the multiple listings. So, so just to clue people in, there were, each of the exchanges had their monopolies. At some point, that did start to break. So new IPOs after a certain date were sort of free for all for everybody. And they were multiply listed, but the grandfathered stuff remained grandfathered. And here's the part, and I think you were at the Philex, and I don't, I don't think we've ever discussed how this actually went down, is what would happen would be when a company would get taken over for stock, um, the options would go up for allocation because let's say you traded a company that was single listed on the CBO and it was taken over by a company that was single listed on the Amex. So yeah. somebody had to trade the options on, you know, the de facto old options that existed because the people in the SIBO still had positions. And those would basically just vanish over time as the, as the options expired. Um, one of the stocks that was multiply, one of the stocks I think it was singly listed was a stock called Visteon, which was an auto parts maker. Yeah. Um, actually, I think it was multiply listed because it was spun out of Ford. And eventually, I think Ford bought them back. And the same sort of thing happened, and the options came up for allocation. But the options, we were the specialists in Visteon on the Philex. And I was the person who sort of got the option allocation. I would sort of make the, op the, the, the decision whether we would trade something or not. And the, the listing memo came up from the Philex asking if we would like to be the specialist in Ford, which was, I think, exclusively SIBO, if I'm not mistaken. And yeah. I said, okay, but um, are we sure? And the guys, you know, so they actually went up and called whoever it was, you know, our, our specialist on the floor, called the office and said, no, 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 this is up for allocation. I'm like, of course I want Ford. Then I kind of like 
thought a minute, you know, went into Thomas's office and said, uh, you know, Thomas, I think I might have just like started a war here because we because we just got granted the specialist book in uh, in Ford, which was a SIBO stock. And he thought for a minute and goes, ah, it's going to happen anyway. Just do it. (laughs) (laughs) And that's I I believe that is literally how the multiple listing war really kicked off. Does that jive with your recollection? Which, which would be something either you either you made a clerical mistake or you made a willful or you made a willful decision. I don't think I was with Sandy yet at Philex in that year, but I remember that moment in time, and I because I had the same reaction when I saw, you know, the uh, the information circular. And I don't know if I called him at the time, but they knew exactly what they were doing. Okay. Because as I recall, they figured that they were dead meat with with the Dell list, and for people who weren't part of the exchange trading community. These listings, they sustain the entire business. Absolutely. And the, you know, so Dell at that time was one of the most actively traded stocks and options in, in the country, if not the world, and exchanges collect transaction fees. This is before the exchanges let customers trade for free. So they're basically like cash machine. And as I recall, Sandy figured he had to move first, otherwise he was dead meat on the street. Okay. And he did. Okay. And then, and then I think, if I'm not mistaken, SIBO went after uh, Dell within a week. Oh yeah. Oh no, no, that, that like all hell was unleashed as a result yeah, because, yeah. because they had to reciprocate and, and boom, boom, boom. But, but, you know, Thomas was like, you know, after I kind of inadvertently, you know, you know, accepted the volley of that first shot, you know, was, was, you know what, it, it was going to happen and it was going to happen. If it wasn't, if it wasn't, you know, if it wasn't us, it just happened to be, it just happened to be us. Um, but there, you know, that's the most, that was the, the beginning, the beginning of that the change. It. And it's good. For, you know what, you know, you think of talk about spread compression spreads were, you know, a quarter or a half a dollar. Now they're, you know, a penny, a nickel, you know, if it's, if, you know, that's, that's a massive contraction, 90% or more. And I think the, inve- and I think the, the, the type of volume that, the, that we're seeing, the growth that we're seeing the options business is stuff you and I couldn't have dreamed of in the old days. Well, back in 99, if you trade, if, if we traded one million contracts for the entire day amongst four or five exchanges, <laughs> it was a huge day. Yep. And I think now we're trading. I haven't seen the uh, the twenty twenty one summing up, but on some days we traded forty million contracts. The open interest that expired the other day was, you know, I, sorry, January expiration uh, was, I think, about four hundred and fifty million was the open interest prior to that expiration. Wow. I remember that Goldman had a stat out that one point three. Three point three, three point. You published it. Three point. I read. I don't get their research, so I read your version of it. Three point three trillion of open interest was expiring on the Jan on the January expiration, which much and much of that was expiring leaps, and so the number was inflated by deep in the money options, like whoever still had open interest in the Tesla one dollar strike that was listed three years ago, but um, that was there. But this is stuff we couldn't have imagined. Meanwhile, we've gone on a while. You and I could talk for quite a while. And I think we have. Um, and so I think we're going to wrap here. Is there anything we didn't touch on that, that you wanted to discuss today? No, it's always a pleasure to be, to, to be with you. It's, it's great to, quote unquote, see you <laughs> after the, uh, you know, the, all the, the, the COVID uh, it's you been know, a hibernation. While. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're way overdue. Yeah. I want to thank everybody. You've been listening to IBKR Radio. I've been talking to my guest, Steve Sears, CEO of Option Solutions um, and a longtime Barron's columnist. I'm Steve Sosnick, Chief Strategist at Interactive Brokers, signing out and wishing you all a good one. Thank you for listening. 
Thanks for listening to Traders Insight Radio. As always, there's more content at tradersinsight.news. And if you're interested in learning more about interactive brokers, visit ibkr.com. We offer more trading education materials such as webinars at ibkrwebinars.com, market-related courses at tradersacademy.online, and quant-related articles at ibkrquant.com. Options involve risk and are not suitable for all investors. For more information, read the characteristics and risks of standardized options, or ODD, which may be accessed through the link found in the show's notes or podcast description page. Interactive Brokers is not affiliated with and does not endorse or recommend any third-party investment information, advice, services, or products discussed in this episode. The analysis in this material is provided for information only and is not and should not be construed as an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy any security. To the extent that this material discusses general market activity, industry or sector trends, or other broad-based economic or political conditions, it should not be construed as research or investment advice. To the extent that it includes references to specific securities, commodities, currencies, or other instruments, those references do not constitute a recommendation by IBKR to buy, sell, or hold such investments. The material does not and is not intended to take into account the particular financial conditions, investment objectives, or requirements of individual customers. Before acting on this material, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and is necessary, seek professional advice.